0: It's, uh, I think it was almost two years ago when I, um, if I remember rightly, when I last preached in a pulpit. It was uh, just when the lockdown started, so just not quite two years. Then I had to get used to preaching on the internet. And so I sat there the first day looking at my computer, looking at this little camera, and thinking, how can I preach to a little hole in, the, in this gadget? And I, I slowly got used to that. And then I got I got used to it, and then I I became unused to, to doing this. So in fact, I was on my way here this morning, and I thought, I think I'd better go home and get me notes, because, you know, that's not... So I forgot me notes, so I'm, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit strange uh, coming back to normality. So anyway, where we read from in Philippians is what I'd like to focus on today, so... What can we say about this? Uh, Just as by way of introduction to Philippians, it was a letter from Paul to a church. So it started life as a piece of paper. Someone got a pen and Paul or his mate wrote down this letter, got folded up and handed to someone and taken to the church of Philippi. That's how this book started life. And then being uh, having this uh, authority, it was then included in the canon of scripture. So where was Philippi? It was where Greece is today. It was, it was a Roman colony in northern, northern Greece as we would know it today. And the church of Philippi was one that Paul planted himself. So he had a few missionary journeys and on his second one, Paul planted this church and you may remember this little story from Philippi concerning Paul, which is that he got in trouble with the police, with the local authorities. If you look in Acts 16, it says about Paul and his friend um, Silas, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to, to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them uh, safely. That's Act 16. And you re- may remember how the story ends. There's a miraculous release of Paul and Silas from their bonds. And the jailer is flabbergasted by this miracle. And he says, he says w- w- what do I have to do to be saved? And that, of course, is the great question, the question of all questions. The biggest question a man or a woman in this life can ask what must I do to be saved? How do I get right with God? Well, what about this letter then? The other letters, they tend to have some problems that Paul addresses, but not so here. He had very, very little to criticise the Philippian church for. So the tone of this letter is its full of joy, it's full of thankfulness, and it's, it's very warm. And remember, Paul was in prison, so Paul could have maybe been in despair. He could have maybe felt sorry for himself and looked for pity. But instead, he was trying to encourage the churches instead. So he gave thanks and he glorified God. And so the whole letter of Philippians is about being steadfast, being immovable, and being faithful to God. So this morning it's only the first uh, three verses. It's only the three, first three verses. The first two verses, in fact, I'll be focusing on. So you'll notice it starts with this greeting. So verses one and two, it's a, it's a greeting. It's it's from both of them, but obviously Paul is the real uh, author there, and. All the letters in the ancient world were the same format. It was greetings from me to you, and and this one though is obviously more of a a Christian flavour. So this one, um, this one has uh, elements in it. For example, instead of saying greetings, it uses this Greek word charis, which means grace, and it it changes it like that. It also mentions Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so uh, we have praise as well, don't we? So it's definitely of a, a Christian tone. And that that if that greeting sounds familiar to you, it's because it's been used in a number of other letters. He starts the letters to Rome, Corinth, uh, Galatia and Ephesus. He starts them all in exactly the same way. So for example, in Romans he says to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that common uh, way of addressing uh, the churches. Now when, he, when Paul went on this second missionary journey, he asked uh, Timothy to come with him. And so Timothy became a really prominent member. It says in Acts 16, at the beginning of Acts 16, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra A disciple was there called, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a a Greek. And so this is how it started. And then we read when Paul actually writes to the young Timothy when he's a pastor. It says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul saw Timothy like his own son in the faith. So, it's a little bit unusual, this greeting in in this respect. He uses the same title, the same um, description for himself as for Timothy. He calls them, he says, now what's the word it uses there? It says servants. In this translation it says servants. It could be translated slaves. Slaves. And so, Paul says, "Me and Timothy were both slaves." Other other greetings. He starts off by saying, "Now look," because he has to, you know, he has to sort them out some problem, and he has to say, "Now look, remember, I'm an apostle, so you've got to listen to me." He has to, you know, exert his authority, but he doesn't need to do that here. So he approaches them as slaves. What a, a strange thing, isn't it, to be a to be a slave of sin, and then leave that, and then become a slave of someone else. But we become a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's not not like an eternity of being shouted at and made to do horrible work. Being a slave of Jesus is a joy. It's a daily joy. And so, yeah, we, we love to have that yoke of Jesus put on us. We love to be bound to him forever. Another thing about this letter is... It's not the type of letter where Paul sat down and thought, right, I need to structure this now. I need to get across this point and that point and that point. It's quite informal. It's like Paul's just picked a pen up and just poured out what's on his heart, his feelings for this church and his encouragements. So it's, it's a bit unusual in that respect. And as I say, it's very, very warm. So I want to pick out three things, just three things from this greeting today about the local church, and the first point I want to make is about the, the structure. Can we can we say something about the structure, the government of the local church? <clears throat> From this, well, the first point is that it's addressed to the saints. The greeting, verse one, is addressed to the saints. Now. You'll notice the Roman Catholic view of saints is, is different. They will, they will, uh, will recognise someone in history in the church, someone of notoriety, someone who's, um, sorry, someone who's done something outstanding for, 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 the, for the Roman Catholic Church, and they declare them to be saints. Now, you know as well as I do that the scriptures say that all of God's people are saints, every single one of them. And what does it mean, saints? It means it means holy ones. Holy ones. And holy itself means God takes something, that's you. He takes this thing and he places it over here and he declares that that thing, he's going to use that for his own glory. And that's what holiness is. So that's what being sanctified is. That's what being a saint means. Set aside by God to glorify him. And that is our purpose in this world. Holy. Fully consecrated, hopefully, to God's service. We also see there, then that you've got the saints addressed. And then you've got these others as well. They were also saints, but they're, they're addressed specifically as overseers and deacons. So you're all familiar with these different kinds of offices in the church. If you come from an Anglican background... Well, I was baptised in an Anglican church. That's about it. You'll know that they have all kinds of... Uh, they have a massive structure, don't they? Of bishops, archbishops, and all these other things. And a lot of other things I can't remember. They have this structure. But the, the structure here is... The, there's two classes here. Overseers and deacons. The, the reason... The reason for the appearance of these officers in the church is this. When the church was launched, it went through this short period of being based on what they call the itinerant ministry. That means like Paul and the others were going round all over the place preaching, trying to plant churches. It was a transitional time. God gave them tools. He gave them charismatic gifts. They were able to do something uh, incredible. They were able to, you know, they were immune from venomous snakes, for example. They were able to touch people and heal them. They were given these charismatic gifts um, to, um, to really to, to kickstart the church of God. But those apostles obviously ended up getting jailed, killed, or they were far away. And the, the little churches planted needed leadership. And that's why they introduced the leaders in the churches themselves. And so there was a need for different types of leadership. Now, the Church of Philippi had actually given money. They'd made a donation to, to the poor churches. And who sorted that out? Who in the church? You can't have a church where everyone's in charge, obviously. All chief and no Indians. So there'd be a small group within the church who who collected all the money of the people and then ar- arranged how much they were going to send to the, to the church over at uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> so they would, be your, uh, they would be your deacons. They would be in the, the office of deacon. But you have this uh, other word, overseers. It's Overseers is uh, translated... I think the AV translates it as uh, sorry the authorised version translates it as um, bishops bishops because there was a (coughs) there was an Anglican sort of influence wasn't there with the King James Bible so it says uh, they got that word in bishops and uh, just to make it very clear the words overseer bishop um, elder presbyter they're all the same. They're all the same. They're all the same office. So if you see these in different Bibles, just remember, <clears throat> you're looking for two offices here, two different types of office. So you have the the elders, the overseers, or whatever. So they have the spiritual oversight of the people. They're there to to make those spiritual decisions. Then you have, over here you have deacons. The deacons they, they would they would sort out the, the collections and. Spending money, getting the church fixed up, and so on. Now, in small churches like New Road was, you know, we we had um, we had to we couldn't have that structure. There was too few people to have that proper, you know, structure. And so that's in small churches. You have people like multitasking, like like Alan. You know, puts his guitar down, gets the paintbrush out. And then goes and does this other things, and so you, you get that. But certainly the aim is is, is these two these two roles. <clears throat> it says in the scriptures about this office of the elder <clears throat> or the overseer that anyone who desires that office desires a it's a, it's a noble thing to, to, to want to do. It says in Paul says to Timothy in his first letter, he says an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of just one wife, so not you know more than one, um, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and also able to teach. And so the elders in the church, there might be a church with two or three or four elders, and there may just be one that does the teaching regularly at the front, but the others must be able to teach also. They must have that ability to teach. And the term in the Bible here for overseas is plural, so that does away with the idea that there's just you know there's just one bishop you know ruling an entire city uh, as we sometimes see in today. Okay, so we've mentioned the overseas, we mentioned what the deacons do, and so that's like the government of the church. That's what we can get from just this little greeting. I want to say something also about the. The relationship of the local church to other congregations. Think of this: Paul and Timothy are writing to another congregation. It's almost like one church writing to another church. And so, we could maybe draw from that that we are to have good relations with other churches. That that makes sense, doesn't it? Good relations with other churches. We're to love them. We're to love the people in the other Christian churches. Because they're good enough for Jesus Christ, so they should be good enough for us. If you criticise if you criticise Christians, well, in your own in your own church or in someone else's church, you think about this Jesus Christ stands at the throne of God, speaking on their behalf, telling the Father how good that person is. They belong to me and they are therefore acceptable and I want you to you know, accept them for, for my sake. So he stands, he stands mediating for this person. But then if I start you know, slagging this person off, what, what does that say? What does that say about my wisdom or my love? So yes, the church is full of cranks, it's full of bitter people, it's full of annoying people. We know. But still, if those people are good enough for Jesus, they've got to be good enough for you and me. There's also um, between the churches mutual support. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so, uh, even, if, even if we, as a body, were going through all kinds of troubles ourselves, it doesn't allow us to say, we've got our own problems, we, we can't afford to, to help you. We find a way of helping our brothers and sisters, wherever they might be. And I'll just say this one more thing about these relationships with other churches. Um, <clears throat> do we cooperate with anyone who calls themselves a Christian congregation? There's a, there's a church down the road on, um, by the Jolly Miller. They're all professing Christians. They all sing to God. They all believe Jesus died on the cross. Should we fellowship with them? Well, they're Mormons. Now, most of you here, <laughs> at least most of you will say, well, no, Mormons are not a legitimate Christian congregation. So no, we don't, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons and all these others, we don't fellowship with them. We we have to keep them at a distance, although we, we love them individually. And so how on earth do we decide? Who who do we fellowship with? Well, we, we fellowship with Dingle Mount Church, it's a Liverpool City Mission Church. So that's easy. And then we don't fellowship with the Mormons, and so in the middle there's a whole range of churches. And the answer is there is no answer. We have to just make the decision one by one about who we can uh, who we can um, in all conscience fellowship with. We have to make that difficult decision, but certainly we have relationships as as uh, with other churches as we are able and the last thing from this greeting I want to mention is We've looked at the the church's uh, structures, government. We've looked at its relationship with other congregations. And now the church's supply of its needs by God. Who is God? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned here. Holy Spirit's not mentioned. But Paul mentions him all over the place. So it's implied But, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. He's so special, the Holy Spirit. He gets this title of holy all the time. And he's the one who sustains life. He sustains all life. And in particular, he lives in the hearts of us, his children. So we have the Holy Spirit there. And we have uh, the Father. Now, the Father is, is mentioned here. And obviously, in the Scriptures, he's pictured as the one... On the throne all the time. He's always on the throne. He's always directing. Uh, the affairs. Of, of, of God. And we have of course. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus. Uh, as the most prominence. Uh, in the scriptures. He has this prominence. Because of his salvation role. He's being thrust forward. Out of that trinity. He's being thrust forward. As the one. Who would lower himself if you like and make himself a man and come to this earth to die to die for sinful people at Calvary that's what he agreed to do if you, <clears throat> if you would allow me to compare this to some kind of theatre production God has his theatre the theatre of grace where he's going to display his grace that is, that is the world and you have the director, he's the one who oversees everything. That's God the Father. You also have someone in a theatre production who's in the background. He's doing all this work, going around and doing this and that and the other, but you don't see him. That's a little bit like the Holy Spirit. But there on centre stage, with the spotlight on, is Jesus Christ. And that is how God has decided to do it that he would have the preeminence, that he would be at the front that he would get all the glory and all the attention and we remember that this God then is a triune God and he supplies all our need and it tells us here what's supplied or rather what Paul is hoping is supplied it's two things isn't it grace and peace grace and peace Someone said to me that grace is. Well, in fact, well, this is a definition I used to use. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. But there's a fault. There's a fault with that definition because Jesus at Calvary got something he didn't deserve. But we wouldn't call that an act of grace, would we? An act of grace. But we can just say grace is. You know, it's just a, a free gift. It's a free gift. What is a gift? A gift is something you don't... A boss doesn't give a gift to the worker for working 40 hours a week. That's wages, that's earned, that's not a gift. A gift is when you voluntarily moved by love or thankfulness. You take something of value and give it to someone else hoping they will benefit by it. And that is grace. It is free and it's a gift and it's motivated by love the greatest act of grace has to be this business that happens at Golgotha when the, the son of God agreed to become a substitute and agreed himself to hang him and be hammered to death by his own father for other people other people who didn't even appreciate him who came into this world full of rebellion that's me and you full of rebellion and yet we have this amazing work at the cross. And now that we are believers we're expected to um, we're expected to display grace ourselves. So we are expected to be gracious to other people. Now to, to be gracious means that we have to learn to give people the benefit of the doubt. So that when someone says something. And you know them from old. And you, you think I know exactly what she means. I know what she means. She's, she, she's, she's not a pleasant woman. He's not a pleasant man. The fact is you have to find a way. To, to find the best spin. On their behaviour. That you can. It doesn't matter that you're. Your logic is telling you that it's probably this or probably that. She's probably being wicked. We have to find a way of as far as possible. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. Always hoping that their motives are good and they're not evil. And that is tough. That is a tough thing to do. But we're to display the grace that God has shown towards us. We're to have that same mind. This Puritan, John Owen... You can read John Owen's books. They're very long (laughs) and difficult. Um, But such use this man had in the kingdom of God. He said this. It is in the nature of this grace to grow and increase unto the end. As rivers, the nearer they come unto the ocean where they tend, the more they increase their waters and speed their streams. So, grace will flow more freely and fully in its near approaches to the ocean of glory. So if I've understood John Owen correctly, he's saying that as we go on in our Christian life, as we daily get closer to meeting God, then we're to expect that we are to grow in grace, in that attitude of grace. And I'll finish with this. Peace. It's, it's uh, best to assume that when you emerged into this world, God was at war with you. The Bible says we were children of wrath, just like everyone else. That's what it says. Children of wrath, every one of us. It matters not whether you were brought up in a Christian home, whether you were baptized as a baby, like I was. It doesn't matter if you were brought up in a Uh, A criminal family. We're all in the same boat in that respect. There was this warfare. And what happened to those people. Like you sitting here today and me. What happened when God came and broke into your life. Is that the warfare came to an end. There was then peace between you and God. All his anger has been spent And carried out on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is absolute peace now between you and God. And. That being the case. Is it not obvious. That if there is now peace between us and God. That there should be peace between ourselves. Should we not display that sort of attitude of peace as well. Should there not be peace in the church certainly should so as we reconvene our uh, prayer meetings these are the type of things that we have to pray for that peace would reign in our church that great love would abound so that we're able to say like Paul I hold you all in great affection that, that's what we need to aim for